Today's scripture reading is from 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 8, and it's verses 1 through 13. You can follow along on page 6 of your bulletin as I read. Now about food sacrificed to idols. We know that we possess all knowledge, but knowledge puffs up while love builds up. Those who think they know something do, you not, do not yet know as they ought to know, but whoever loves God is known by God. So then about eating food sacrificed to idols. We know that an idol is nothing at all in the world and that there is no God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom all things come and for whom we live. And there is but one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things come and through whom we live. But not everyone possesses this knowledge. Some people are, are still so accustomed to idols that when they eat sacrificial food, they think of it as having been sacrificed to a god. And since the conscience is weak, it is defiled. But food does not bring us near to God. We are no worse if we do not eat, and no better if we do. Be careful, however, that the exercise of your rights does not become a stumbling block to the weak. For if someone with a weak conscience, conscience sees you with all your knowledge eating in an idol's temple, won't that person be emboldened to eat what is sacrificed to idols? So this weak brother or sister for whom Christ died is destroyed by your knowledge. When you sin against them in this way and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if what I eat causes my brother or sister to fall into sin, I will never eat meat again, so that I do not cause them to fall. Thank you, Kwaku. We're continuing in our study of 1 Corinthians, moving chapter by chapter. Now today we're on chapter 8 of this grand letter. And afterwards, as always, we will have a, a brief time of Q&A so you can store up your questions and uh, be ready to discuss the teaching afterwards. But let's first pause and pray. Let's pray together. Jesus, we need you. Uh, we need you to clear our minds, to energize our minds, that we can think our thoughts after you, but also that our hearts might be attuned to you. Uh, help us uh, not to resist your words, but always to follow hard after you, to be disarmed by your love and your grace, and help these truths to come alive in a life-changing way for every person. We come from many different backgrounds. We have different stories. Uh, we have a lot of different things going on in our lives, each of us. So Holy Spirit, would you come and minister to us in precisely the way we most need? Only you can do that, uh, taking these eternal matters and bringing them so personally to each of us. But we trust you for that work. Please do it. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. The Stilton Company recently launched a campaign to promote a new perfume, which they called Eau de Stilton, or Stilton. The fragrance is described as having a symphony of 
natural bass notes including yarrow, angelica seed, clary sage, and valerian, which might sound fine to you, right? Until you realize that Stilton is a cheese company in the UK. And Ode Stilton was their attempt to recreate, quote, the earthy and fruity aroma of Stilton's blue cheese. I mean, have you ever dreamed of smelling like a bag of aromatic blue cheese? Well, here's your chance. In the article that I was reading about this, one of the executives sort of brushed off any suggestions that Stilton might not be the most attractive of aromas. He, he called this fragrance an unusual but highly wearable perfume. And uh, a 24-year-old man from Manchester was also interviewed in this piece. Uh, apparently, he had spent the day wearing this new fragrance and reported no ill effects. I'm in an office with lots of men, he said, and nobody's complained. <laughs> well, of course not, right? You know, here, let me just rub this wheel of blue cheese in my armpits, you know, in the morning. Uh, how could that possibly get in the way of me and my friends, right? Yes, food and sometimes even the stinky scent of certain foods, sometimes it can complicate our relationships, even when you're not wearing blue cheese perfume. And that was one of the things that the Corinthian Christians were learning. Food can complicate our relationships as we discover this in the 8th chapter of the Apostle Paul's letter to them. You see, in this passage, the Apostle is addressing a debate that had arisen in the church. It was about food. As he mentions in verse 1 and verse 4, there was confusion over food sacrificed to idols. Well, what does that mean? Let me explain briefly. In ancient Corinth, and really broadly in the ancient world, meat markets were usually connected to pagan temples. That's why an idol's temple is mentioned in verse 10. And so if you did your grocery shopping at one of these markets, then that meant that usually the stuff that you purchased had at some point been dedicated to a pagan deity like Poseidon or Zeus or Aphrodite. And so the key question for the Corinthian Christians became this. Well, is it okay to eat that food? If we eat meat that was at some point sacrificed to idols, are we basically participating in idolatry? Are we being unfaithful to God by eating it? And already, some of you might be thinking, well... That's a problem I'll never face. What's the relevance to my life today? Except that's just not true. You might have noticed, as I have, uh, small uh, shrines and figurines on the shelves and walls of some of my favorite restaurants here in this city. You know, you're eating food that has been dedicated to certain gods. That's not just an ancient dilemma. So is it okay to eat that food? 
Well, how were the Corinthians answering that question? This passage tells us that there were actually two groups that had formed, two groups that were responding in two different ways. The first group sounded like this. Could you please pass me the gravy? This steak is really good. Right? No problem at all. This group was very confident that it was perfectly fine to eat food that was sacrificed to an idol, and their view was confidently grounded in their knowledge of the truth of Scripture. Paul summarizes their argument in this way in verse 4. We know that an idol is nothing at all in the world, and that there is no God but one. In other words, Apollo, Poseidon, Zeus, they're not real. The Bible tells us so. They are literally nothing. There is only one true God, the God that we worship, and as verse 6 says, one God, the Father, from whom all things came and for whom we live, and there is but one Lord Jesus Christ through whom all things came and through whom we live. And Paul says, you know what? You're correct. You're right. Verse 8, food does not bring us near to God. We are no worse if we do not eat and no better if we do. No food is corrupted by where you bought it and by what was done with it. All food ultimately comes from God in Christ. You are free to eat this food. That was the first group. A second group in the Corinthian church sounded a little bit more like this. I don't know, guys. This doesn't feel right. Here's how Paul describes this group in the second half of verse 7. Some people are still so accustomed to idols that when they eat sacrificial food, they think of it as having been sacrificed to a god, and since their conscience is weak, it is defiled. See, here's the thing that we have to remember. Everyone in the Corinthian church at this point was a new follower of Jesus. They were pagan idol worshipers just three years prior to when this letter had been written. Some of them even more recently than that. So to many, this whole situation of sitting uh, with this meat, this food that had been sacrificed to idols as an actual practice of worship, it just felt too familiar it feels to them like the food really was sacrificed to a real God. Eating that food felt wrong, so no thank you. They refused to eat it, and they were pretty sure that everyone else should refuse to eat it too. Those are the two groups that we have. The question then is, how did the apostle respond to this situation? He already did say, biblically and theologically speaking, the first group was correct. Christians are free to eat that food. So what more did he have to teach? Actually, something pretty phenomenal. I don't know if you caught it, but he actually teaches two amazing lessons. Number one, that true knowing is loving. And then number two, that true loving is dying. True knowing is loving, and true knowing 
is dying. Let's take a look. The first lesson is that true knowing is loving. As I said earlier, that first group in the church, the meat eaters, they were focused on their knowledge of the truth. There's only one God, so there can't be any harm in eating food that's been dedicated to gods that don't even really exist at all. So for them, knowing the right thing was all that mattered to them. That's why when Paul is addressing them in this passage, he uses the word knowledge or to know or knowing about ten times in this short passage. You see, but knowledge all by itself always makes us arrogant and proud. Their knowledge about the truth about God and about idols was beginning to make them look down on other people that didn't see it that way. Uh, people who were more nervous about the situation, like, gosh, how, how can you not know this? You call yourself a Christian. How, do you, how can you not understand this knowledge, this truth that we should know? See, knowledge by itself always leads to arrogance and pride. For us, it, it might be technical knowledge. You know, maybe expertise in your field or a special skill that you have that other people don't. It might be relational knowledge. You know, who, who is it that you know that kind of makes you feel superior to other people. It might be someone known in the world. It might just be someone on your block or in your apartment. It might be experiential knowledge, you know, where you sort of start to patronize people who are maybe younger than you or less experienced than you, you know, maybe parents who haven't been in the game as long as you. Or like the Corinthians, maybe it's theological knowledge that's making you feel puffed up. You assume people that don't know as much as you do about the Bible are, well, they've got to be spiritually less mature. Are you letting your superior knowledge of whatever sorts make you feel superior to others? You see, but here's what this passage teaches us. That knowing the right thing isn't the only thing that matters. Look at the second half of verse 1. Knowledge puffs up while love builds up. See, here's the point. Knowing the right thing isn't the only thing that matters. What matters is love. What matters most is whether you use that knowledge that you have, that skill, that person, that relationship, that experiential wisdom, that biblical tr truth, whether you use that knowledge to serve others and to build them up. Not to prop up your own ego, but to prop them up in love. In fact, Paul goes as far as to say that you don't really know what you think you know if you don't use what you know to love people. Verse 2, those who think they know something do not yet know as they ought to know. In other words, if you know a lot but have no love, biblically you actually know nothing. If you are right but loveless, you are wrong. Because 
True knowing is loving. The only knowledge that counts is knowledge that's applied to someone else's benefit. Love builds up. It's a question that's worth pondering. Every one of us, how can you love someone with the unique knowledge that you have been given today? How can you love someone out of the unique insight that maybe you've been trained and equipped up with in theological understanding or biblical insight? How can you love someone with the relationships that you have? Maybe you have unique contacts and friendships that you can then deliver over and share with other people in a way that actually serves them well. Maybe wisdom and insight that you have from life experiences as a parent, as a person, as a professional, as a neighbor, and, and you're communicating those things in a way that actually helps people rather than just helps your ego. Uh, technical knowledge or a skill or expertise, maybe if it's just simply your knowledge about fixing a bike or if it's knowledge about a particular academic field, whatever it might be, how are you using that knowledge in order to lift others up in order to love people today? Dear friends, true knowing is loving. But here's the second lesson that we learn in this passage, not only that true knowing is loving, but secondly, that true loving is dying to our rights. Here's Paul's challenge to the Corinthian meat eaters. In the gospel, you have a right to eat this food that's been sacrificed to idols, but will you take a pass on exercising that right out of love for your brothers and sisters. See, look at how Paul breaks this down starting in verse 9. Be careful, however, that the exercise of your rights does not become a stumbling block to the weak. For if someone with a weak conscience sees you with all your knowledge eating in an idol's temple, won't that person be emboldened to eat what is sacrificed to idols? Well, here's the situation that Paul has in mind. When you eat the food sacrificed to idols, dear Corinthians, someone with a quote-unquote weak conscience might see you. Now here, weak conscience means an overly sensitive conscience, an inner voice that's telling them that it's wrong to eat, even though it really isn't. But because of your example, they might start thinking to themselves, well, I, I think this is wrong, but they're doing it, so I'm just going to do it too. See, this is the problem. We should never, ever train ourselves to violate or to ignore our conscience, that inner voice that tells us that we're doing something wrong. In fact, it's damaging to your soul, the Bible tells us. It's damaging to your soul to say it's okay to sin, even if that behavior is not actually sinful. Because you're messing up your heart's sense of right and wrong, and you're also messing up your heart's relationship to God and to sin. 
And so a Christian friend of yours mistakenly, perhaps, thinks that having a beer is inherently immoral. But because they see you having a drink, they conclude, well, it must be a sin, but maybe it's just a lesser sin, and it's okay to sin, so let me have a beer too. Or your Hindu friend recently becomes a Christian, and they're actually really uncomfortable with the Hindu words and religious practices in the yoga class that you keep inviting them to, But since you seem to love it, even as a Christian, they decide it must be okay to love Jesus and occasionally worship Krishna on the side. Let's do it. Or your child occasionally hears you use grown-up words. And you know that, well, contrary to traditional culture, the Bible doesn't anywhere actually create a specific list of sinful words, but your child says, well, my daddy says bad words, so it must be okay to say bad words, even though I know that I'm not supposed to. See, Paul reminds us that the spiritual consequences can be dire. That's why verse 11 says, so this weak brother or sister for whom Christ died is destroyed by your knowledge. When you sin against them in this way and wound their weak conscience, you sin against who? Christ. Your eating itself is not a sin, not in itself. But now your selfish disregard of how your choices are impacting your brothers and sisters around you. Now here's where the sin comes in. Your disregard of the one for whom Christ died, verse 11, is a sin. In fact, it's an affront to Jesus himself. As verse 12 says, you sin against Christ. So listen, here's the stunning conclusion that Paul makes in verse 13. Therefore, if what I eat causes my brother or sister to fall into sin, I will never eat meat again so that I will not cause them to fall. If the exercise of your gospel rights becomes a stumbling block to those with sensitive or even uninformed consciences, die to those rights out of love for them. You have a gospel right to enjoy a glass of wine. But will you ever give up that right out of love for your brother? You are free in Christ. You have a right in Christ to enjoy yoga. But will you ever, even if temporarily, give up that right out of love for your sister? You have a gospel right to eat at that restaurant or to enjoy that new gadget or to voice that political opinion or to watch that TV show. But will love ever compel you to forego something, even something you love, because you love your sister and brother even more? What joys and freedoms are you willing or maybe unwilling to give up for the sake of loving and serving 
someone else. Beloved, don't you know, if you cannot occasionally let go of your freedoms, you are not free at all. Remember, the idea here is not just people-pleasing. That's not the point. The point isn't that you need to cater to the feelings of every Christian every time they're offended or every time they just don't like what you do. The point is that you don't want to mislead them into copying your example, even when it goes against their own conscience. But the love of the cross always requires us to die to our rights. Paul says, I'm willing to never eat meat again, never eat meat again, if that's what it takes, if that's what love looks like. You vegetarians are like, big deal, right? You have to understand in the ancient world, this is more than just a change in diet. This would have meant a change in social life, who you could eat with, who you could build relationships with. It would have meant a difference in business opportunities. It probably would have meant taking a hit financially. You see, Paul is inviting, the gospel is inviting us to a costly kind of love. Oh, it's worth thinking about. How far are you willing to go in putting the needs of your brothers and sisters before your own? But who can love like that? Who can love like that? Here's one person that comes to mind. It's Palm Sunday today, right? The day that we commemorate Jesus' arrival at Jerusalem where he would finally be crucified for our sins. And that day, Jesus rode into the city on a donkey. That was an ancient symbol of royalty. And he was showered by the praise and palm branches of the people as our children depicted for us earlier. Hosanna, they shouted. Blessed is the son of David. Blessed is the coming king. You see, on Palm Sunday, that day so long ago, Jesus made it crystal clear that he intended to be our king. But he wasn't going to be the kind of king that we expected. And certainly not the kind of kings that we secretly lust after being ourselves. You see, Jesus had the royal right to be recognized for who he is. He gave that up for love. Jesus had the royal right to be given royal treatment. He gave that up for love. Jesus had the right to be honored and worshipped as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He gave that up because he loved you and me. Jesus gave up his right to comforts, living a life of homelessness, And in the end, wearing even a crown of thorns in suffering 
and even dying on the cross in punishment for our sins. He had a right to comfort. He gave it up for love. Jesus had a right to security, and yet his entire life he laid himself with utter vulnerability, even especially in those last moments when he exposed himself to the very wrath of God for the sins of our lives, him taking the judgment that we deserved all because of love. Jesus had a right to exercise even self-defense, and yet as the hung there, insulted, pierced, and hated, he never retaliated and even prayed, Father, forgive them, they know not what they do. Jesus gave up his rights out of love for you and me. He gave up his rights to save us. This is good news. This is the gospel. And when you've received that kind of love, that rights-denying, dying love, it begins to change you. It really does. You begin to want to give that sort of love as well. You begin to find strength and power to relinquish what you used to believe was firmly yours and must always and only be yours. You find power to let go occasionally, to relinquish your rights temporarily, to love and put others before you lovingly. See, this is where we find the secret to love like that. Not just Christ's example, but Christ in you, loving through you, the life of Christ rescuing you, even as you learn to love like him. Because Jesus is the truest picture and the truest power for us teaching us what love really looks like. You see, true knowing is loving, and true loving is dying. And there's no better place that we find that than in the face of Jesus and in his cross and resurrection. Have you seen him in that fashion lately? Have you received him? Has it started to turn your heart inside out? Have you begun to see signs that indeed, by God's power, by God's Holy Spirit, you are beginning to love like him? True knowing is loving. True loving is dying to our rights. God, give us grace to be like that. Let's pray. Jesus, we ask that you would come with Palm Sunday grace and show us how to lay it all down. As you lay yourself down before us and serve us and love us, change our hearts and make us more like you. We pray in Christ's name, amen. Let's stand together and let's sing, come to Jesus. Let's sing about it.